This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hey, welcome to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Today, I'm your host, Robbie Lashwell, and here's the host, Tyler Hurley. Yes, and we are super excited because today we have a very special episode for you guys. Uh, we have several special guests here, as you can see. Yeah, I want to introduce to you guys some of my friends here. So on the far end, this is Caleb Campbell. Caleb and I have known each other for a long time. Yep. I met you at Six Flags on accident in yeah. line on Riddler or something. Yep. It was weird. That's, that's weird. Cute. Yeah, it was very Almost 20 years ago. 20, almost 20 years ago. You're getting old. Uh, right. <laughs> but no, Caleb's the senior pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, a good friend of mine. And then Matt Hawkins. Matt is a former pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and I met Matt for the first time today, actually. But I've heard a lot about you from Caleb yeah. and, and a few other people. So, man, it's great to have you here. Happy to be here. And then my friend Jordan Francis. Jordan is uh, from England, number one, Correct. which is cool. Uh, but also, he runs a great ministry called Real Talk, and Real Talk gets into uh, high school campuses and runs clubs to teach kids apologetics, to ask big questions about life. Uh, they buy them pizza, and man, just cool ministry of kids opening up, and now they're really analyzing uh, Gen Z culture, and then they're putting it up on all of their platforms for people to be able to go and understand uh, how to speak to Gen Zers, what issues they're facing. So it's kind of two two facets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Industry, which is, man, yeah. it's just awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Well, thanks for being here today, guys. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to say something about this episode, just with everything that's gone on in the last uh, week in our country. Um, and, I mean, not just the last week, but culminating in the last week in our country. Uh, this is just such a serious topic that we're going to be broaching today. Um, but we want to right up front say how sad we are about the current state of things and the situations that have gone on, especially with George Floyd and Minneapolis. Um, when I think about it, it just it's disgusting uh, to think about what has happened and um, the injustice that's gone on. Murders, inequality, brokenness in our society. Uh, these things aren't new. They've been brought to the surface through this event. Um, there's been tension and there's been things that sometimes you can ignore, but they've always been there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad we can talk about it, and I'm glad we can take time to, to dive into these issues that haven't just begun, but have been lingering in American culture under the surface. So this event has brought these issues out in the open, uh, issues, attitudes, systems uh, that have been really easily ignored and pushed aside. No longer can we do that. And as Christ followers, we cannot ignore injustice and we cannot ignore people who are oppressed, um, especially when we can do something about it. As Christians, we take seriously what Scripture says. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. This is what we're called to do. And so that's what we want this to be about. How can we as Christian brothers uh, have a conversation that doesn't just remain a conversation, mm. but that can change into action and that we can go out and we can begin to be the church in, in the way that Jesus was, in the way that Jesus has called us to. And so that's kind of setting it up for you. It's, this is a little different. We've never had five people on. Yeah, this is new. This is, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's be awesome and, and fun. I'm just really grateful that you guys are here today. So, mm. so Tyler, why don't you open up with the first question and we'll get started on our discussion. Yeah, of course. So uh, the first question we have, uh, it's from Matt and Jordan. Uh, just with 
Um, tell us a little bit more about your background. We'll start with Matt. Tell us some about your background growing up and just uh, the way that you, uh, your upbringing, where you've come from, and uh, just a little about yourself, I guess. Yeah, so Matthew Hawkins, born and raised in East Oakland, two amazing parents. Uh, my dad's a pastor. Um, my mom is and, and and will always be the holy roller uh, mom <laughs> of the year. She's very traditional, a woman of God, supports my dad at the church, and she was at home with us, um, you know, volunteered at the school, all of the above. But you, my traditional, you know, upbringing was in the hood, in Oakland, um, Brookfield Village. And my my childhood was as normal as, I guess, my kid's childhood is in the suburbs, with the exception of, um, you know, gang violence, um, crack cocaine, um, you know, low-income low education opportunities. We were in a regular old blue-collar, lower-income neighborhood. And so... Um, it was it was weird because I had a great household, but everything outside of the house was mayhem. It was chaos, and a lot of my friends were in environments that were, you know, traditionally unstable. No dad in the home. You know, heavy heavy policing in our neighborhood. And so, just to hit the nail right on the head for me, it this has never been an issue. It's never been a, um, a political movement. It's been my life. You know, everything that people are going through right now or all the rioting, all of the, the uproar, for, for some people it, it seems like a political issue, but for me it's been our narrative for a long time. We hated the police growing up. We were taught to hate the police because um, we saw the police abuse and um, wrongfully accuse um, folks um, throughout our neighborhood, folks that we knew. We love coaches, you know, parks and recs, uh, directors. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so this is something I've been dealing with for over 30 years. That's so tough, man, because, like, again, I'm from, I'm from the hills of Arizona, <laughs> like, right? I, I, the, my context is complete. I have, I have family from the Bay Area, sure. from San Mateo. We go out there and visit, you know, but I'm from, I'm from the mountains. And um, my, I remember the first time somebody telling me how I, as a white man, view cops versus how, how a black man views cops. Yep. And I thought, wait, no, like, that can't. I remember this was, you know, probably 15 years ago. I'm like, that can't be. Like, cops help you. Like, that's what I've always known and I've always been taught. And I was, and, and the truth of it is, man, it's not the same. No, it's not the same. And it's not what we hear and it's not our experience. Yeah. Both ways, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that, that blew my mind that there could be this kind of a discrepancy in the same country. You, you know what I mean? Yep. And so, man, I thank you for sharing that. But that, that is just, uh, it's, it's, it's living in the same place, but it's living in two different worlds. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And it shouldn't be. Um, but that's where we're at. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I and I feel like you know growing up um, versus where I am now, seeing kind of the other side, especially being um, in North Phoenix, um, being near Scottsdale, it's a completely different world, a, a completely different vantage point or viewpoint of authority, criminal justice system, police officers, on and on. I can talk about that forever, but that's a that's a short version of well, and, that, and that's the thing that that I think. As, as believers, we have to do, we need to listen to other people's vantage points. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes we think, well, that hasn't been my experience, so that can't be. Right. And that's just ignorant. That's just stupid. Like we can't right. we can't act like that towards towards anybody, right? Yep. Well, because I didn't go through that. Obviously, must not happen. No, people go through things in different contexts and different experiences yeah. Yeah. from us. And we need to be gracious enough and loving enough to listen to our neighbor. How can you love your neighbor if you don't listen to yeah. your neighbor? You know. And so it's it's very interesting hearing people's perspectives and backgrounds and, and where they've come from. In order to understand and to think through this this whole issue in a way bigger way. Yeah, and, and I think because it's an actual system in place and it's a real life experience for a large group of people, yeah. black and brown people in this country, in reality, you are a part of the system. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like a kind of another world. It's the same world, mm-hmm. but you're just on a different aspect of that overall system. So you're a, you're a part of the system. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes you don't even see it. You don't. You don't. You don't even know. You know, know. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That and that's that's eye opening. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. very eye opening. I'll let you talk though, man. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> taking, no. Go ahead, bro. Taking um, all the cookies here. And to add to what you're saying, I'm just gonna dive straight in here. I think something important to recognize is the normalization of white culture. And so, I'm black. So history for black people is called what? Black history. What is white history called? History. History. Black culture is black culture. What is white culture? Culture. So when you have a conversation with a white person, their context is that their experience is the experience. So then when you tell them there's a different experience, they'll tell you that that's not true, which actually is a form of supremacy because what you're telling me is that you know my experience and my experience is wrong and your experience is right. But like we're not even aware of these systems that are at play as a consequence of the way that we've been raised and the revisionist history that's, that's uh, that is the United States of America. Yeah. But that's a different conversation in itself, right? And as you're saying that, I know because we've already today, I've been on social media oh, yeah. and, and people are chiming in with their opinions and a lot of people are going to come back with exactly with what you said. No way, we got to get all the facts on these. We don't, and it's like two things. Number one, you can't be so arrogant to think that other people don't experience stuff you don't experience. Mm -hmm. Number two, and this is the thing that frustrates me, let's say, and and I don't believe this, but let's say, for sake of argument, uh, somebody's mistaken about an experience they had, but they're coming to you saying, this hurt me, and then you, you come off saying, oh no, that's, get over it, versus... Whether whether it happened or not, whether it's true or not, I don't want this person to be hurting. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's like how can you not even at least be gracious right. in the situation as a believer? Not to mention it probably happened. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah. Like, that's I, the I other narrative that's mind. been sold, right? It's the mistrust of the black narrative. Mm-hmm. So anytime a black person tells you that this is their experience, you've been taught not to trust what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Hence why we don't. So when a black person says this is what's happening to me, Everybody's like, oh, no, it's not. And that's why it's taken seeing a, na- a man die in the street with a knee on his neck who, by all accounts, happens to be a Christian. Yeah. So now nobody can say anything, right? Because yep. we have absolute evidence uh, uh, to point to. It is, it, it is mind-boggling to me that a man can kill multiple African-American people mm-hmm. in a church. Like, he murders them in a church. And he's arrested Nothing happens to him at all. No mistake. No, Don't no, get whooped. He doesn't None. get hit. He, he doesn't get thrown to the ground. Nothing. And we have a guy who allegedly 
has a fraudulent $20, $20 bill, yeah. and he's dead. Yeah. Like, if, if that doesn't... If that doesn't share just a little glimpse of what black and brown people go through in this country, yep. I mean, you just don't want to know. I saw a... You just, you just want to ignore it. I saw a tweet from a professor from SMU, and uh, he tweeted about this, and he said, um, so that one time he had a fraudulent $20 bill um, that he went to the store with and tried to use, and he said, for me, it's a party story that I tell sometimes for George Floyd. It meant his life. Mm. You know what I'm saying? He, same situation. He had a fraudulent $20 bill. Yep. I mistakenly had four yeah. bills. Yep. Yeah, sure. yep. Well, uh, with that, too, I mean, this, this happens all over the world, not just in the U.S. either. And, um, and uh, Jordan, you're from England. So do you want to share with us, uh, just um, coming from a different country uh, than the U.S., what's, what's been your experience that you've seen, I guess? Yeah, uh, yeah for sure. Um, so born and raised in Birmingham, England. Uh, from my understanding of my family, I'm, I'm of Caribbean heritage, so uh, my family is, we're born in the Virgin Islands, right? So St. Kitts, St. Thomas, uh, my dad's side of the family, Jamaica, and Panama, actually. So kind of a little bit all over the place, but mainly from the Caribbean islands, and obviously those were British colonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my family came over to obviously find a better life, experienced racism, different things of that nature. I mean, before I was born, my family... So my parents actually lived in, in the inner city and both got decent jobs and managed to purchase a house in the suburbs. Um, and obviously, they were one of the first black families to... We were one of the first black families to move into the suburbs. And so it didn't go very well for us. We uh, went to a local... They went to a local church before I was born, and my, my sisters had some really bad experiences. Uh, my sister grew up going to a local, local high school, constantly experiencing racism. Mm. So... Um, one of the things she's had to deal with in her late, later on in life is a genuine disdain for white people because of the things that she experienced. Um, and so that was kind of my experience growing up. There was always this sense of feeling less than. I can't tell you, you know, uh, how many times um, I felt like I was in certain spaces where people don't, didn't want me to be there or people looked at me funny. Um, England's a little bit different. Um, and I would say the reason it's a little bit different is because there isn't a middle class the same way that here is here in America. So you really have the people who have and then you really have the people who don't. But the rich, white, uh, the poor white and the, the poor black are very much pitted against each other, if that makes sense. And so um, I grew up not too far from neighborhoods that I couldn't go to because if I did, I might get killed. Um, there was places that said, hey, if you're if you're a nigger or if you're a uh, What's the other one they used? A Paki, right? Paki. That's how they, the derogatory term for a Pakistani, like, don't be caught here after 7 o'clock. You know what I'm saying? And so there's just certain places I couldn't go, um, certain things I couldn't be a part of. Um, and so, and so yeah, I had those experiences. I've, I've seen friends um, get mishandled by the police. And I think our relationship with the police is a little bit different. And obviously, in the UK, the police don't necessarily carry weapons with them all the time. There's a lot more knife crime. Um, but there's obviously not a lot of guns on the streets. And so there was that. But what was interesting about where I lived is it seemed like the inner city kind of followed to the suburbs somehow. And I don't necessarily know how that happened. But you got a lot of people later on moving into the suburbs and the suburbs became rougher and rougher. Um, and so I have a lot of friends who um, are either selling drugs now. They might be dead in prison. You know, when I was a kid, my best friend's mom committed suicide. She hung herself from the ceiling fan in the living room because his dad was the number one drug dealer in our city and used to give her crack cocaine to keep her around. So we have a, uh, we have, so you have the Bloods and the Crips here, and we have two gangs that 
derived from those gangs called the Johnsons and the Bogobah crew. Uh, and so they're like cousins of the Bloods and the Crips, basically, hmm. in my hometown. Um, interesting enough, if you go on YouTube, there's a documentary hmm. called One Mile Away, and it's, uh, it's about that whole thing. But um, anyways, moving to America, and here's what I'll say about, I think there's a uniqueness to the black experience in, in, the, in America. And I'll say uh, black people here have been systematically stripped of their identity, and I've never seen anything like it. I have a sense of pride about my heritage. I understand that I come from islands. I've been there or visited. I know my family that lives there. Yeah. They were ripped from Africa. And now, I don't know if you know this, but in many cases, there's a sense of pride with Africans. So if you were taken away from there, they don't necessarily want to own you, right? Because you're not pure-blooded African, right? So you don't really know, and you, you don't really have any connection to your homeland, so you're disconnected. And then you come, and you're a part of a country that doesn't want you. And so there's this absolute identity crisis in the life of the African-American that I don't see in any other population because they will strip from their homeland. They don't know who they are and the country that they live in doesn't want them. And so I think it creates a unique problem that I've never seen before. Interesting. That's a really great perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about all of that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's really good. When, um, one of the things, again, I, I like to talk about, because I'm, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure, we talked about this before, that our, our audience is predominantly white. Um, and I think that there's a huge disconnect just on the definition of racism between uh, white people and minorities. It, it's, a, it's almost like you're talking past each other using the same term, but you don't have the same definition for the terms, right? And so what do you see like as a big difference uh, between what what white people think about racism versus what black people think racism is, uh, the, the term itself. What is racism? Either <laughs> anybody can go. Caleb, yeah. you want to weigh in? <laughs> anybody can go. Yeah. We haven't talked, so I just figured. Yeah, right. you I'm know, trying to be. I'm trying to be nice. Let the, like, bro. Uh, we I should let take, the bishop go, and then hey, I'm enjoying. I can take up this whole guys. podcast, and then you know we'll just. I'm just trying. How not about to. we let him go, and then we'll just well, pounce. I, I think sure. that. Uh, Jordan really had a great uh, way to talk about it and define it. Why don't you share? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, it isn't mine. Daniel Hill is a pastor in Chicago. He's written a book called White Awake. Uh, if you haven't read it, go read it. It's, uh, it's, I think it's a good introduction for white brothers and sisters in terms of thinking about this issue. Um, and he makes the point that when white people are talking about racism, they're talking about the individual. And when black people are talking about racism, they're talking about power. And so there's this... Um, there's this individualism that mocks the Western world in a way that it doesn't anywhere else. And so we have this tendency when we process through things to internalize them and, and interpret them in terms of context of self. We even do that with the scriptures, right? And then we end up butchering it in some, in some cases. And so I think the same is true with this issue. When you're hearing a black person talk, you're automatically assuming that they are accusing you of racism, and they're not. They're saying that there's a system that we live in that is racist, and as a byproduct, it affects their ability to to do and to not do things in a different way than it does the white person's. Mm -hmm. I, I think too, uh, in the white, in the majority of white people's minds, when they think about racism, what they're imagining is slavery. They're imagining Jim Crow. They're imagining segregated schools. They're imagining uh, lynchings, because that's, you know, in their mind, they they don't they're not forced to ever care about racism, right? Mm -hmm. You can just stop caring as a white person and there's no penalty or there's no cost to that. And so we learn about it in school maybe a little bit or, or popular movies and then that's it, you know? 
and and I think it's wise to engage with some of those movies. But one of the negative effects of watching uh, movies about historical forms of racism in America is it can convince me as a white person we fixed it, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So I watched MLK march, and then some people passed some legislation, so we're done. We fixed racism mm-hmm. because. I don't see lynchings anymore. Uh, now it's shapeshifted to uh, people in authority with their knee on someone's neck. Yeah. Uh, it's shapeshifted to like instead of we, we desegregated schools, but then we just created private institutions which are predominantly white and mm-hmm. work uh, systematically to keep out poor people, specifically people of color. And it, it shapeshifted, um, and so it's hard I think for white people to even put their finger on it because they're in their mind it's those images which we're not doing anymore and I'm certainly not doing mm-hmm. and therefore I'm not a racist and I don't know why you guys are talking about racism because I'm not seeing those things anymore mm-hmm. and I think from Jordan's uh, statement you know when you view racism as systemic power structures um, which I think the biblical authors understood that evil could take systematic forms mm-hmm. and so I think that the systematic evil uh, the de- the demonic force of racism did not go away in the 60s it just shape-shifted mm-hmm. and uh, to to kind of abuse and borrow a quote the greatest trick the racist demon ever pulled was convincing a bunch of us that it stopped existing yeah mm-hmm. and I think that uh, for though for people of color specifically in America uh, they have been um, yelling and screaming. The demon just shapeshifted. It didn't go away. We didn't excise the demon. And people in power, uh, majority culture folks, are like, what are you talking about? I don't want to deal with this. Um, of course we fixed it. And I'll just I'll point to one stark reality. Uh, if you're a church-going person, look at the people in your church and tell me if it is diverse as the local Walmart. If it is not, it is a byproduct of a broken, evil system that convinces a bunch of people, specifically in majority culture, that is completely cool to be in a homogenous church mm-hmm. where everyone's the same. Mm-hmm. And we're just fine with it. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think that that I'm cool with this, the fact that everyone looks like me-ness, um, is a... It's a symptom or it's a telltale sign of the fact that the racist demon shifted. Mm-hmm. No, that's so true, man. And even as you say that, I can think of I can think of four churches here in town that were big back in the day and predominantly white because they were in the suburbs and now they're not in the suburbs anymore because the city's grown up around them. But they're still predominantly white. It's just everyone drives in. Mm-hmm. And they're not reaching their culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So no, you you totally see those yeah. types of things happening. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. If your church isn't as diverse as the local Walmart. That's good, man. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You have to look at that. I you also to. think, too, that every person in majority culture needs to ask themselves a question that, that people in minority culture face every day, mm-hmm. specifically as it relates to church. If everyone on the stage and everyone in authority over me in the church was a different race than I am, would I leave the church? Mm-hmm. Or would I have stuck around? Sure. Um, that that's a that's a question that every Jesus follower in majority culture should wrestle with. Mm-hmm. If everyone on the stage and everyone in authority me in this church, elder board, preachers, band, whatever, if they were all different race than I was, would I choose to leave the church? I think I think a lot would. I, I mean, I think a lot of people leave for lesser reasons, right? Like like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't like this music. Well, I don't like that. You know, mm-hmm. and man, to struggle through that. Yeah. Yeah. Something that most people never even have to think about. That's good. Yeah. 
Well, I think that that's one of the biggest things in that that's helped me over the last ten years. I've read a lot of um, George Yancey. He's a he's a sociologist in Texas, um, and he writes a lot of good stuff on um, on how how race is viewed and what what do we do going forward and how do we fix this as believers. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me. Just like you don't even define it the same, man. Like it's not even you're ta- you're talking past each other. You can't have a conversation unless you at least define the terms of what are we discussing here. Hundred mm-hmm. um, percent. So. That's that's huge, I think, in order to even. But again, what does it take? Stop talking and take some time to listen to what yeah. people are saying. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's huge. And as Christ followers, that's what doesn't the Bible say something like that? Be slow to speak and quick to listen. I'm pretty sure it says things yep. like this. Slow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What I, what I, what I've seen though, in in especially in the past couple of days, um, is this arrogance and this pride that comes. Um, whenever someone gets shot in the street or whenever there's a race riot, it seems like there's this posture from white evangelicals um, of, of I can give you all the data and all the statistics on um, how many black men have, have been killed, about the plight of this particular community and where that comes from. And to your point, um, it has nothing to do with your shoddy statistics. It has it has everything to do with one statement. I see you. That's it. That's that's what I I really believe. So many people. If you think about the Me Too movement, and so many women that have been brutalized and have been taken advantage of, um, the Me Too movement at its core is we want to be seen, we want to be heard, and we want to make sure that that this does not continue. And it's it's very similar with. 400 years of oppression. Yeah. You want to define what racism is? It's it's really simple. It's a systematic way to oppress an entire people group for years, for hundreds of years. Yeah. And all the effects of oppression will continue to show up until what has been done in the past is made right. Yeah. And one of the ways some people that might be listening, well, how do you make it right? Start with seeing the people that are around you. Just like truly see them for who they are, not what media is telling you about them. Don't, don't judge me. And this is what everybody wants. This is what every single human wants. Everybody wants to be seen for who they are and to be given a chance to be heard. And a black man ends up killed on the street under a knee for eight minutes because something in that white man's head said, his life is not worth as much as a white man's life is. Because if there was a, I, I am positive, if that was a white man, it would be a different outcome. If that was a white man, I'll just say it, I won't ask for anybody's permission. If that was a white man <laughs> under that knee, it wouldn't have lasted for eight minutes, man. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. And there's a system that's created to teach white people that they have the power and the ability to get away with murder. There's a real system in place. And, and murder looks different ways. Ruining people's lives looks di- different ways. For George Floyd, Floyd, it was real murder. Figuratively speaking, for Amy Cooper, who's in Central Park... She weaponized the ability to say, I am with a black man. 
Like I'm a black man, yeah, a, a black man, yeah. like he's the one man. sentence, one sentence on the cell phone. This is, this is unanimous. Like if you look at all these different calls on YouTube of, of people um, calling in, um, 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 giving a police report, they, they use, they, they've weaponized yep. a description of me. How can you describe me as a human being? And, and it automatically triggers an entire organization to hunt and, and treat me as prey. Yeah. How is that humanly possible? Yeah, and, and, and simultaneously believe everything she's saying. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's it. Both ways, yeah. She, she learned that. Yep. Amy Cooper learned that she can use a description of me as a weapon. Well, and how do you, because this is the thing, again, because people are listening and watching and they're thinking, systems of racism that are still oppressing people and getting away with murder, literal, but even figur figuratively. Yeah. So what are things like, because again, and I, I've read up on some of this and I'm not even close to an expert and I haven't lived uh, it, but what are some things that are like, this? see, this system has caused these things to happen. Right, like what are some like? Let's talk about some of those things yeah. so that people will actually be able to go. Oh, I can see that. Like that makes sense. I never even realized that was in place. Mm -hmm. Sure. So yeah, I think something important to understand when we talk about racism is that racism is steeped in the almighty dollar, mm -hmm. and so there's this reality that racism is an outworking of America's original pursuit, which was to build an economy. And how did we build it on the backs of slaves? And then what did we do? We didn't pay them for it. And then when they finally started to build their own economy, we destroyed it, right? And so um, it's always been about and always will be about money. And so when we start to look at it in terms of dollars and cents, we start to see how it begins to work itself out. Like a real quick, easy example. How are schools funded? Property taxes. I live in South Phoenix, homie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? My house does not cost the same amount that a house does in Scottsdale. And so the quality of teacher, the quality of equipment, the quality of apparatus that those students are going to get by proxy, guess what? They didn't choose to live there. Their parents lived there. That wasn't a set of choices that they made. This, this narrative that sold that, oh, well, your life is just in a culmination of the choices that you make. Yeah. That's not true at all. How and about if you're presented with a different set of choices than the kid that lives in the hood? He's not even thinking about the same things that you're thinking about. My homie who grew up in this city who couldn't read till sixth grade, and when he was born, his parents were using crack cocaine. He didn't have the same set of choices as the kid who lives in Scottsdale. It's not that the opportunity wasn't there. It was that he wasn't aware of it because his world was completely different from the world that you're living in. Mm -hmm. And so, and what's interesting is I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's a police officer, and he's talking about, look, fundamentally what you have to understand about the system is there are laws put in place that clearly help certain people and not others. Right. So, for example, uh, you could commit a crime. So we were talking about this just the other day. So you got the Duke, the Duke uh, lacrosse team, right? Yep. Who committed a crime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or we don't know. Right. Allegedly committed a crime. Sure. Yeah. Hire the best lawyers because they got what? They got money. 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 Get away with it. Central Park Five. Five black children. No money. What happens to them? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So oh, yeah. the issue is not just racism. Racism is this thing that we're seeing, which is a part of this larger system, which is economics. Yeah. And it all traces itself back to slavery. 
That's how the system was created. In business, we call it path dependence. Walmart cannot become Whole Foods. If it tries to, it will cease to exist because it fundamentally has a different business model. America's a business. It developed itself a very particular way, right? So now what we're saying is this system that's been created over hundreds of years somehow just ceased to exist mm -hmm. and it's not in play anymore mm -hmm. and yep. it's not affecting the way we live? Of course it is. Yeah. And it's and it's accumulative. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not like it's not like, oh, we took care of things when mm -hmm. segregation was over or when it, because and again, people don't know about a lot of this stuff. Um, but even even government laws, right, about the suburbanization of, of metro areas yep. and giving tax breaks to white people to yep. move out of downtown. But yep. not Redlining. Tax breaks to black people, right? After World War II. Yeah. We're going to. And then what happened? Yeah. And so industry moves out. So let me, let me yeah. jump in here. Uh, one of the common themes in the white supremacist movement is black people are poor because they're stupid, inept, not hard mm -hmm. workers. Jordan, you're hitting on something that I think would be good to talk about. I don't want to try to phrase the question, but you mentioned redlining, you mentioned some of the bank laws, World War II. Uh, talk to me about the intersection of poverty and the black experience as you see it with those specific laws. So we're trying to put our finger on sy systemic yeah. <laughs> evil. Talk to me about that, and even with Phoenix, right? Yeah, for so, sure. So, so Phoenix, you know, south of the train tracks, yeah. right, and north of the train tracks, it's it's understood that there was this agreement that black people post-World War II can't buy houses north of the train tracks, right? So, And the mortgage companies yep. had maps. And so they made sure that they didn't give people, black people or people of color loans to go into those neighborhoods. So what do you do post-World War II? I can't remember which president it was, but he signs that bill so people can get mortgages, right? Mm -hmm. So now you start to build these houses for veterans. They start to go out into the suburbs. Uh, all the businesses follow them. And guess what? People of color can't. So now you leave them in the inner city. It's derelict. Uh, it's breaking down. You don't have anything for these people. You have poor education for them. So they and then where are they going to go? They get an education to go do what? Because they can't move out of that space. They can't really. There's no real upward mobility, right? In that regard. And so what and, happens? And to that point, just to just to intersect this, there are black people that are coming back from the war that have the ability to afford anywhere that they want to live. Yeah. And so they go to the bank. Imagine black dad, black mom going to the bank to do the same thing that white dad, white mom did, but that guy gives a little wink or a little nod and nobody services him, nobody helps them. And, and so that, that mindset that media might tell or that story that media might tell that we're lesser than or we're not as smart as or, or all these things or why don't they just figure it out and work hard. Some Somebody posted that on my Facebook page two days ago. They said, look at all of these famous black people that have made it. Look at look at Oprah. Look at Tyler Perry. Look at Barack Obama. You should be able to figure this out. And in reality, what they're missing is it is an entire system in place that has that that has made it so that majority of the people yep. can't have access to the same things that you just woke up like this white man just woke up like this white lady and you didn't even you didn't even think when you walked into the bank yep. this is not going to work out for me it, it didn't even it didn't even it didn't even cross your mind which is which is how you can live in a bubble or live in this naive state like oh this doesn't exist it's not a reality yeah. and and when i i guess to the point it's tough for me to excuse ignorance in 2020 mm -hmm. 
<laughs> when so many of my friends and so many of the people around me can just hit one Google search and find all of these dates and all of these yeah. <laughs> movies and all of these articles and all of these books that historically track yeah. the school-to-prison pipeline. You want to talk mm. about another system? School-to-prison pipeline. Yep. I'm, I'm born and raised at Brookfield Elementary in the hood, to Jordan's point, a less-funded school. Teachers schools look like prisons. They look like prisons. Go to Cesar Chavez High School, homie. Yeah. Thank, thanks be to God, I made it to college because... God gave me a mom and he gave me a dad that, that held teachers accountable, held principals accountable, and advocated for our education. But what about the, the young man, my best friend, who is currently locked up right now, 40 years to life, he didn't have a dad in the home because his dad couldn't afford bail for a, for a petty crime that he may or may not did, but wasn't given an opportunity to actually have his day in court because he couldn't afford bail, he's, he's in prison for three and a half years, learns all types of nonsense in prison, gets out. Now he can't get life insurance. He can't get an apartment. He's got a felony record. And so what does he do? He goes back to the same way he was making money or that he heard people were making money in prison. Because he has no choice. He's selling drugs He's because nobody's going to hire him. He's blacklisted for the rest of his life. Talk about a problem with the criminal justice system. Okay, so now he's back in jail. So now we have an entire family, an entire generation without a dad, without a covering, without protection. And now a kid can only go to the people that he sees when he's walking to school. My best friend only sees the same father figure every day walking to school, and that's a pimp or that's a drug dealer. I have my dad. He's the pastor dude. So I see a pimp and a drug dealer as stay away from that dude. But my friend is like, no, 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 no. He says hi to me. He has money. He has brand new shoes. He has a nice car. He has access. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a systematic way to break down an entire people group. And, it's, and, it's, and th- that's the thing people don't understand either is that it's, it's still, I mean, the, the redlining thing, that's segregation. Yep. Right. Yeah. It is. 110%. That's what it is. And there's more to it too. There's not even just that. You've got the war on drugs. Right, so now I go into neighborhoods and stop policing. You telling me the only place that drugs are in a city is poor neighborhoods? No, Scottsdale has a lot of drugs. Oh yeah, you know where the most drugs probably are here? Where people have money. All white tukey. Yeah, I just said all white tukey. I sure did. I sure did say it. Right. So like, where people have money? How come it's that you can is can you still go to jail for uh, marijuana possession more than cocaine possession? Is that still the case? It was at one point, right? Marijuana possession was worse than cocaine possession. How I mean, does that to, work? To your it's point, in poor neighborhoods, right? To to your point, I have a family member right now that has forty years to life because she was transporting for the very first time. Straight A student, great great human being, transporting. Didn't know she was transporting. Transporting cocaine. Boyfriend had it in the car. Transporting co- cocaine. Forty years to life just for driving with it. Fast forward to my private school, high school, through the Better Chance program, full ride scholarship. They they looking to get black and brown kids out of the hood to put on a brochure for their big time private school. That was great. I got a great education. Free education was awesome. But freshman year, fourteen year old girls from Fortune five hundred families are being sent in the mail pounds of powder cocaine. 
They get a slap on the wrist when they're caught. They get sent home for five days. The dad is a donor to the school. No criminal charge, not arrested. And these are Harvard grads today. All about that money. Today, they're Harvard grads today in, on Wall Street today when my family member is still locked up. You want to talk about a system? That's a system. And here's the thing we have to understand about that, right? The reality is, once again, it's all about money. And I, I want to I harken back to something we were talking about a minute because you mentioned, I think, I can't remember who it was mentioned, an important point about there being black people who are successful. So there's this video of Jay-Z, and he's talking about all the people that he lives by. Yo, this is a dentist. This is a YouTuber. This is this. This is that. And then he's like, I'm the only black person here. And guess what I had to be to live here? Jay-Z. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the point. We're talking about LeBron James, uh, Tyler Perry, Oprah. They're exceptional You got to hit the lottery. You got to hit the lottery. You have to be the cream of the crop. Right to make it out, but I'm living next to a dentist. I'm living next to a YouTuber, and they all happen to be white, right? Mm -hmm. And then what we also have to understand is like there is this reality that there are people of color who have money. That's not not true. And there are also people who are poor who are white. Sure. But what's the narrative with that? There's been a narrative that's been sold with that the whole time too. Because if we go back to slavery once again, and then we go back to the idea of police officers in the South, they were instituted for what purpose? to stop slaves from running away, right? Now, what we have to understand about that is that before blacks were just slaves, there were Irish, Scottish, right? And they were called niggas too, right? So what happens? You start having uprisings because the poor white and the poor black keep coming together to revolt against the rich white slave owner. So the slave owner says, here's what I'll do. Mm -hmm. I will ingratiate this whole population that looks like me and get them to police the blacks. So, hey, I'll treat you like me if you oppress them on my behalf. And then the narrative has continually been sold that what? Hey, the reason why you're poor and white is because all those niggas and spicks are taking your jobs. That's the narrative that's been sold, right? So that's why we're constantly told, hey, these people can't come into our country because if they do, they're going to take your women. They're going to take your jobs. That's not true at all. And it's implied. It's not your fault. that It's not your fault. You're, you're not dumb and lazy. Yeah, it's not, it's not your fault. It's it's this in it's this it's this less than human group of people that are trying to infiltrate your country and take all your resources when that's never been the case. Yeah, and the just to lean into that a little bit uh, again, thinking about systems. So I don't know if we've used it on the pod yet. Uh, the word Caucasian, what is that? So it's uh, to my the best of my knowledge, it was it, it, to put it another way, what is white? Uh, white is a construct, a social construct that we that white people created to maintain and consolidate power. Uh, if you look through the uh, certain history books, the ones that generally written by black, black people, uh, you'll see even in our history that uh, different legal organizations, governing authorities would designate a person white. Um, you know, there's certain rules. The interesting thing, this is all based on uh, broken scientific uh, models around eugenics, where you know, 300 years ago, science was used, quote unquote, science was used to segregate people into classes mm -hmm. and therefore justify slavery. So mm -hmm. how could a Christian mind in 1700 AD justify slavery? Well, science tells me that uh, this category of person is, is less than me. I'm a Caucasian or I'm a Nordic or whatever. Um, 
But we even have record of people of color being legally designated white because of their wealth. And so to, just to prove, just to lean into Jordan's point a little bit more, uh, and to Matt's point, do a Google search on what whiteness is, spend some time thinking about how we're even using that. Uh, the, the concepts um, were uh, broken scientific justifications for the oppression of peoples. Mm. And we never repented of it. And we never did the hard work of reconciliation. Again, we just kind of acted as a society like we passed some legislation and it's all fixed. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, no, excuse me, three days ago, I got uh, four different, uh, excuse me, five different people that are in my social network, so to speak, uh, posted or shared with me a post that said something to the tune of, uh, beware, be cautious. If you live in Scottsdale, look at this post. And the post read something like this. It, it, was, it gave you the impression it was written by someone who's going to be um, looting or rioting. Of course, no name on it, dubious origins, looked like it was a troll. Uh, but it basically said, we're coming to where the white people are. Let's go to Fashion Square and Scottsdale Quarter, and we'll rape the white women. And uh, you want to talk about, again, systemic injustice. The fear of white women being raped is a crowd pleaser in white supremacist circles. If you are a white supremacist at a white supremacist rally and you wanna get the crowd going, you can use language like, they're gonna take our jobs, everyone will applaud and cheer. Uh, they're gonna ruin the economy, everyone will applaud and cheer. They're gonna rape our women, that's when they get guns. And so even right now in my city, uh, people that I know and care for a great deal, uh, without thinking, bought into this narrative that the thing that white people need to be afraid of is dangerous, violent black people. Uh, there have been now proven to be false, but reports on statistics about how black people are inherently more violent, which is all a load yeah. of crap. Yeah. That black on white violence is sky high and it's just, it is just statistically false, it's provably false, and yet because of the 401 year narrative mm -hmm. that we've all been born into as people in uh, majority culture, my natural default is to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because when I drive down to South Phoenix, it feels not safe. Uh, so probably, yeah, that's true. And then that's it, that's all we do because we hear it, we post it, we share it enough times, we hear, say it enough times. Yeah. We, say things like, we say things like the immigrants are gonna take our jobs enough times it just reinforces that, that demonic force of racism that's in the bones of the country. Yeah. And this, this, yeah. this, is, this is why I'm a huge, and maybe I'm skipping too, too far towards the end, but this is why I'm a huge like, preacher for, or, or you're a huge you know, promoter for people getting out of their bubble and, and being intentional about having rhythms not Black History Month, not Cinco de Mayo, not, not, you know, one vacation, but to dramatically shift the, the circles that they yep. hang out with. Because it only takes one added family, the Hawkins family, my family, to get into your orbit to shatter probably majority of the things that you think about this country, the land of the free, the home of the brave. You will quickly, that, that will quickly be shattered when you spend just a few moments mm -hmm. 
with somebody like me for me to tell you my narrative and my experience and not for you to say, mm, oh, man, I, oh, I'm so, I feel so bad for you. Oh, and then you walk out and then, you know, go turn on Netflix when you leave. But to really understand that we live in, in a society that is the tale of two cities. It's a different world. Mm. Yeah. It's a completely different world. Yeah. The, the street won't change until your dinner table does. Yes. So if, yes. if there's one walk away, I think, for, for anybody asking the question, what do I do, it's your, it starts at your dinner table. Man, and see, and I completely 100% agree with that. And yet, I know people, white people, who uh, will have a friend from Mexico or they'll have a good, a good black friend. And then I hear them, because I agree with you, but I hear people say things like, uh, they, they, they'll post these crazy narratives. And, I, and I'll say, what are, you, what are you talking about? Aren't you friends with this mm -hmm. person? Well, like, yeah, but that's different. He, he's not black like that. Like that. Sure, exactly. sure, sure. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's, yeah, well, it's whiteness and blackness, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Not, it's not that like a, a black person is necessarily going to behave a certain way and a white person is necessarily sure, going right. to behave a certain way, right? There's cultures that we've created that all different types of people bounce in and out of. Now, the reality is whiteness primarily belongs to people of European descent, right? And blackness prim primarily belong belongs to African-Americans, and they're labeled two particular ways. And as a consequence of that, that's why you get uh, real rap. That's why you get black people that would say racism doesn't exist and all those types of things, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why you get white people on the flip side that would say that that's not the case, and that's why you get white people that would say, well, I've got my token black friend here who's speaking for every black person that exists yeah. that says racism isn't true, so therefore yeah. it isn't true. And because yeah. it came yeah. from a black person, right. they can speak for your whole people. They don't even yeah. realize that's supremacist and racist yeah. in, in the first place, right? Yeah. Well, it's, that's, that's it's like, like mind-blowing. Like, back to my point, is like even when people have like genuine friendships with people with mm -hmm. different ethnicities, they still have this disconnect of, well, yeah, I, I have a friend like that, but he doesn't really represent because there's this bad thing out there. And it's like this mythological created thing in the culture, even when they have been shattered by, no, I sit at dinner with this guy. I hang out with these people. They're my friends. Well, yeah, I, I still have this weird. And I think like to, to, to put it in Christian terms, our gospel is just simply too narrow. It's too small, right? It's all It's all about the forgiveness of my sins as an individual. It's not about a God who sends his son to redeem creation itself, right? It's not about the reality that sin is not just individual, but communal. So I don't just sin as an individual, but I get together with my buddies and figure out how I can sin against other people, right? And not that we just do that, but we create systems and structures to keep ourselves in power and to keep people underneath us. So sin is individual, communal, and systemic. And so Jesus comes to deal with that, the whole thing, right? And he buffs this new kingdom. And what's this new kingdom about? Like people being reconciled to one another. And we're supposed to be this display piece, right, yeah, to the yeah. world that we will proclaim the goodness of the gospel and invite people to come partake of his communion at his table. Right. But in order to do that, right, we have to show what that kingdom looks like. I'm getting tired of people telling me, oh, well, we'll get ultimate justice when we go to heaven. What do you mean, bro? Jesus said heaven's supposed to come where? Down to earth. That when everything, when he reconciles all things to heaven, heaven and earth are going to meet each other. And so we're supposed to be a reflection of that right now. Yeah. And so what that means is in the church, 
We're supposed to be reconciled in the church. We're supposed to be talking about these issues in the church. Anywhere where the Imago Dei is being dehumanized, we're supposed to be combating against it. Like, what do you mean? But once again, it's because we've been sold this narrative that, hey, it's all about the salvation from your individual sins. Hey, brother, don't look at porn. Don't eat too much. You know what I'm saying? And so we're not looking at these macro issues. Well, don't you think that's systemic because America is so yeah. individualistic? But that, then you're getting back to Plato and Aristotle. Then you're getting back to the Enlightenment period and how all that stuff narrowed and squeezed in our idea of the gospel because we were the people that created hospitals and orphanages. We were the people that went into uh, London when the plague was happening and died as we took care of people. We were the people that toppled the Roman Empire, you know what I'm saying? Because of the way that we took care of not just our own poor, but their poor. You know what I mean? Like, there were so many things that... Christianity affected culture. Yep. And, and, I, and I would push back on anybody that says I have really close friends. Because... Who are, yeah, who are, black, who are black. Or who are Mexican. Because, I mean, in Scripture, we see Jesus says, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's getting to intimacy. And so I will tell you personally, for all of you that are listening that says you have a black friend, I guarantee you that if you don't have empathy for that black friend, with that black friend not being in the room, but you seeing another black man with a knee on his neck being held down and you don't empathize, you don't weep, then I guarantee you it's not as close as you think it is. Somebody's giving into assimilation within that relationship, either that black man or, or, or that, that good Mexican friend. And I've been this person that I don't trust you enough, white man. I don't trust you enough, white woman, to be my real self around you. You might think we're best friends because of two beers, but I ain't your friend. At the end of the day, I don't, I, don't, I don't trust you with my heart. I don't trust you with the closest things near and dear to me because you're going to go to your right rhetoric. You're, you're going to go all the way to that other end, and I don't want to be uncomfortable. So I'm not going to show you that particular aspect of me. We're going we're gonna to keep this coworker to coworker or church member to church member or golf buddy to golf buddy, and we'll tell our same jokes, have our same scotch and golf, and then we'll, we'll walk and leave. And, I, and I'll have a good time with that particular aspect of, of my emotional capacity to be around a white man. But it doesn't mean you're a friend. That, that, that doesn't mean that we're intimately engaging into all aspects of my oppression. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Well, let's move forward because, again, big problems. <laughs> like, yeah, like it's, yeah. it's very daunting to talk about this. And, and, and obviously the knee-jerk reaction of a lot of people I know is to ignore because it's, it's too much to deal with. It's too big. And I don't want to think the world actually is like that. Right? So it's better to be ignorant than to do something about it. But what can we do about it, right? And again, I, I want to talk about like specific things we can do, majority culture church, to start stepping up and, and bearing one another's burden. Yeah. But also minority culture church, what what can what can they be doing? What can what can be going on in those churches? Um, but also and, and Caleb, I just I would like you to speak to this a little bit. Um because cause you were a skinhead in high school. Yeah, and after. Yeah. And after, yeah. And so racism... And You're not hate. still a skinhead, are you? <laughs> <laughs> this would be a, a lot more fun uh, conversation <laughs> if I was, I think. It's more interesting. Well, but you were. Yeah. And um, now you're a pastor of a church mm -hmm. that has uh, a wide variety of different ethnicities in it, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to speak to you even like how did the gospel impact you mm -hmm. and change your view on human beings and and the issue of of hate and racism 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in high school, I fell in with a group of neo-Nazi skinheads, and uh, it was I was a prime candidate. Uh, the promise was is that you would get brotherhood, you get protection, and you'd get uh, a justified life, meaning there's a purpose for your existence. And, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white, it was like, man, I was like the poster child. And so um, also free beer and chicks was a part of the bargain as well. And then after, you know, just cut it, you, you're just around it enough, right? It's systemic. You, you get discipled into it. Um, but the discipleship process in white supremacy is feeding off of a 401-year uh, foundation, so it's relatively easy. Uh, coming out of it, uh, for me at least, it was more about uh, actually economics. I looked around and said, well, if this is the kind of life I'm going to lead, where are all the wealthy, successful 55-year-old skinheads? And I couldn't find anybody. And so I was like, this is dumb. And so I stopped participating in that, was just lost in life. Uh, actually, uh, right in that season, I met you and uh, was invited to participate in something at the church that I now lead uh, as a pastor. And it, uh through that process of discipleship, knowing Jesus, being discipled towards the Jesus way, uh, two key principles just were very clear. Number one, that you read the first two chapters of the Bible, and the concept of the image of God being inherent in every person just immediately deconstructs the concept of racism or race-based power structures, uh, levels of playing field. And you watch the early church, so you read through, obviously, Jesus' ministry, but the book of Acts, and then also, and I think... Paul probably has it more acutely than, than the other authors. Uh, everywhere that these authors are writing in the, New, the Newer Testament, they are talking about how Jesus has given us the power uh, and ministry of reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the key places where you see it. But there's constantly statements like, uh, forgive one another, be long-suffering with one another, bear one another's burdens, which you alluded to a moment ago, and, and all these one another commands. But what I found in that was that oftentimes the the other, right, the one another, was divided around nationalism or ethnic divisions, right, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, and so forth. And th- these biblical authors in the New Testament are constantly yelling at their churches saying, when you guys get together, you're tearing each other apart because of all these differences. And ethnic differences and nationalistic differences were key key differences. And to, to share a... Con- to not do away with our ethnic differences. Um, I, I despise the phrase, I'm colorblind or I don't see color. I, th- I think that that's an affront to the beauty of diversity that God's designed in humanity. Uh, so I think it's really bad theology. Uh, but to see each other, I think, when it, I think you said it, to see each other truly for who we are in our differences, and instead of using our differences and weaponizing them as uh, power to gain and accumulate and maintain power, but rather to celebrate the glory of God through them. And the biblical principle and the Jesus principle in Philippians 2 is to constantly look for ways for me to give up power. I think if we're ever going to move forward as a nation, uh, every person in majority culture has to look themselves in the eye and ask themselves the question, am I willing to give up power for us to reconcile? Uh, Am I willing to give up things? Because in every human relationship, when we're seeking reconciliation, we have to give something up. And I think societally we have to do the same thing. Uh, and so it's, it, I think just the, the whole of the gospel story has radically overhauled um, 
my understanding of our differences uh, and how we and, and I think how we move forward. Yeah. Well, let's get into that. What do you guys think are things we can do? Practical things yeah. that majority culture church people can <laughs> do. There's people out watching and going, "What do I do? I'm sick of just posting stuff on social yeah. media which does nothing." Yeah. No, that's the thing. We're seeing everybody like sharing. Uh, like the outcry on social media lately, but obviously this is something that's been going on for yeah. a long time, and it's not yeah. just this week. And so, what? Are, yeah, what are some practical things we can be doing? I think that's the point, right? So before, I think you make a profound point. This idea of giving up power, um, but I don't think this is a conclusion one can truly come to quickly. Right. And so I think what can happen is, in the guilt and shame that a white person may feel and their need to push past that guilt and shame. Because mm. the reality is, for white people, when we have the, when they have these conversations, this isn't something they've had to stare in the face a lot, mm -hmm. right? They've been sold this narrative that they're innocent. Mm -hmm. Like black, we don't believe that. We know we ain't, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? We know our history. All, all other people of color do. And so like, we don't live under this narrative. We live mm. in neighborhoods where people sell drugs and people die, you get what I'm saying? So we don't, we don't come from this ideology that like, everything's all good and we're good, right? And so when you're, when you're then told everything's not good and you're not good, that's a large pill to swallow. Mm. Uh, and so mm. I think there needs to be time staring this thing in the face, mm. just looking at it, looking at how ugly it is and looking at how much it affects your life. And so um, I think in order to see that real transformative change, that, that's the work, the hard work that needs to be done on the inside of the white person in order to be able to even really start to make those systemic long-lasting changes right like because if you take this thing seriously it literally could change your life yep it means you might move from where you're living it means you might yep. make different decisions in terms of your job it might mean that you make different decisions in terms of who you marry like this like the implications of this could be massive for your life could be massive for your christianity and your uh how passionate you become to fight for this issue of reconciliation and not just purely in a racial sense, but in a Christian gospel whole world sense, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think we've got to make sure that we don't try and move into solutions too quickly mm. because it just feels like we're trying to move into solutions for the sake of not talking about it. Mm -hmm. So let's hurry up and let's get a solution so we can stop yeah. talking about this instead yeah. of like, no. Like I had a, I had a homie text me just the other night and like it really struck me he's like man i can't sleep bro every time i fall asleep i see your face i see all, all the other guys' face we used to live in a house together back in texas he says i see all the faces of my black brothers underneath the knee of that yep. police officer and i can't sleep it's a sign of real friendship right there. do you get what i'm saying though and i'm just yeah. like dang yeah. you know what i mean that's real. like he's that's real. like he's feeling it you know mm -hmm. what i mean and i think that's the space that we need to come to and when we come there then when we make solutions I feel like there's this there there's this real sense of being compelled to actually do something yeah. out of like the gospel, out of like humanity, the Imago Day, as opposed to, man, we need to stop talking about this. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah, I would I would just if I could just throw out something practical, because I know certain people out there are like, but I need something to write down. I need something to act on immediately. And so I would say two things. Um, one, support and two, submit. So support black and brown um, and minority um, um, organizations that mm -hmm. that um, Christian organizations and um, whatever is in line with your belief system restaurants 
um, you know, support. Banks. Yeah. Like look, yeah, banks. Schools, look for strategically, just like many of you, um, many folks have, have told me, hey, don't do this with, with this particular company because they support, you know, abortion or because they do this or because they do that. Just like you're strategic in what organizations and companies and clothes and shoes and coffee that you patronize um, and their politics, I would, I would encourage you to be intentional about supporting um, African-American um, and just black and brown businesses as a whole. Why? Well, Jordan clearly mentioned that this is about money. It's about a money grab. So practically speaking, for some business folks on, on the podcast or whoever, anybody, they're on Amazon, they're on Etsy, um, they're everywhere. You can find black-owned businesses, dentists, doctors, the list goes on and on. Um, but then I would say submit. So I would say submit to leadership. Mm -hmm. And so for some of you, it might mean, to Jordan's point, you might have to dramatically shift certain areas or aspects of your life. And so where are some, some black leaders that you can submit under their organization? You can mm -hmm. follow them. Or, or, or some Hispanic leaders that you can follow. Why, why is that so important for me to submit under that leadership? The humor is different. The jokes are completely different. It's going to expose your bias. It's going to expose your white privilege. It's going to make you uncomfortable how they navigate time, how they, how they navigate the agenda, how they, how they navigate political issues. Do you know I had no idea how political my skin color was until I left the African-American church? It wasn't until I came to a predominantly white church that I found out that so many of these discussions were taboo. Like these, these were off limits. Like you don't talk about who you vote for. You don't, you don't talk about X, Y, and Z from the platform. All these different things when it was a punchline, you know, from our platforms growing up in an African-American context. And so when, when you go to a black church in South Phoenix, that's biblically sound, great preachers that have been preaching, churches that have been in existence for 150 years, mm -hmm. that have navigated the civil rights movement, that have, have, have nav navigated slavery, all these different things, these historically black churches, you will quickly be a fish out of water and it'll create instant empathy for the other. Mm. Yeah, that's good. No, and that happens so much. Like, like even you guys were talking about earlier about how you got to get out of your bubble. You got to get out of your context. You know, yeah. I even think when people go on mission trips overseas, it breaks them down because they realize, oh man, this is not where I live. This is not how I do things. And I've got all these weird ideas about how you do life that don't happen here or there. Mm -hmm. And I think that culturally, wherever it is, whether whether I mean, whether you're going to to Europe or whether you're going to Africa or you're going to, to the Philippines, whatever, it's a healthy thing for people to go, Jesus is way bigger yeah. than how I do church on Sunday, uh, than how I do business during the week, uh, than how my family congregates and meets and what we do. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's mind-blowing to go mm -hmm. out and see that stuff and then to appreciate the difference. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is beautiful. Like yeah. you were saying, Caleb, like, yeah. the, the colorblind model is stupid. Like you, yeah, you don't ignore the diversity that, that God has created. It's an awesome thing that we can appreciate if you can get over. Uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable because that's not how I do it. But 100%. And, and one, one more just tiny little piece. Yeah. I can talk about this forever, but there might be some people that are like, well, I can't go. I can't totally shift my life. I got a some lot going on. Some people listen in Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people... Um, yeah. you, my kids, I have, I have four beautiful kids. My wife and I, we have four amazing kids. They are learning 
how to be the future judge or how to be the future police officer or how to be the future doctor, whatever. They're learning that right now. They're, they're learning about how to treat white people as a judge, how to treat black people as a judge. They're learning that right now. They're learning that from mom and dad. They're learning that from the things I watch on TV, mm. from the books that I read, from the theology that I subscribe to. Mm. And so for a lot of us, one action might be, why don't we shift a lot of the books that we're reading? Mm -hmm. If they're all white authors, you're probably gonna get a white American experience yeah. when, you, when you're consuming that content. Netflix, if you, you're only sub subscribing on Netflix or on your podcast or, or, or on your blogs, if it's, if it's strictly white content and white guests, I mean, why don't you diversify that a little bit? Yeah. You you can start there because your your kids are going to see you listening to that. They're they're going to hear hear yeah. that, and it's going to be a good chance that when they're eighteen plus, when they're twenty plus, when they're thirty plus, they're going to see things differently when they're in positions of power. Yeah. So modeling it well, yeah, for yeah. The future generations. That's cool. Big... Not just during Black History and Singular Mile. Though. Sure. Two uh, things. It's uh, real, real. Yeah, lifestyle. I love it. Two things I want to add to. Um, I would say. White pastors need to be willing, if they're serious about this, to put people of color in real positions of power. Mm -hmm. And that may mean putting them in your seat and you moving out the way. Mm -hmm. um, Malcolm X said it this way, and if you don't like me quoting Malcolm X, you probably have a problem, right? <laughs> he said, hey, if there's an organization that's coming to help black people and there's a white person that's leading it, beware. Yep. Right? Suspect. Sus. <laughs> that's that's the reality, right? Like, if you want to change something, then you have to put us in real seats where there's actually influence yeah. and power. And that's up to you, right? We don't hold that power. You do. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, like you were saying, I think there's this narrative that's been sold. And I know this narrative was sold to me. Yo, like, all black theologians or all people of color theologians are just a bunch of liberals. Yeah. And then when I go and read these cats, I'm like... It's a lie. They lied to me. <laughs> So, like, Why? go put yourself on with some black theologians. Go read some black theology. Go read some liberation stuff. Go read some stuff that's liberal. Why not? Right? You might learn something. Yep. And so, um, once again, there's just certain things that we can do. And I think those are two two things that definitely need to be considered. That's awesome, man. Well, hey, we're getting out of time here. And so, uh, I know you guys got other things you're doing today. Uh, but I really thank you guys for being on the show. This has been enlightening. Yeah, it's been thank enjoyable, you. And I know people are going to really gain a lot uh, from this conversation we're having. So, and hey, thanks listeners for, for watching and for listening on the podcast today at uh, the Christ Culture and Coffee. We'll be back next week to continue our um, series on nihilism. Uh, but we thought, man, this week with everything going on, we got to talk about these things and um, as Christians yeah. uh, kind of blaze the way forward and what we can practically do. So again, guys, thanks mm -hmm. so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more people.